0: I thus address the world through the medium of the latest wonderful invention so that my voice, like my great show, will reach future generations and be heard centuries after I have joined the great and, as I believe, happy majority.
1: Welcome to Becoming Barnum, The Journey to Fame and Fortune, a podcast presented by the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Connecticut. The Barnum Museum has a unique treasure in its collection, a 750-page copybook of letters written by Phineas Taylor Barnum when he was traveling in Europe in the 1840s, introducing his young protege, General Tom Thumb, to millions of ordinary people, as well as royalty and high society. These letters offer a unique glimpse into the life of P.T. Barnum as a husband, father, mentor, and entrepreneur. Join us as we travel back in time and learn about the real person behind the legendary P.T. Barnum through his own words. If you enjoy this episode, we would appreciate it if you would subscribe to our podcast to help our rankings and support the Barnum Museum. And now, on with the show. Welcome to Becoming Barnum. This is Will Saris, and you have heard my voice uh, reading to you these, uh, these podcasts over the past several months. But now that we've reached the end of the actual episodes about Barnum's letters, I have a feeling that you guys will be curious about what happened next in P.T. Barnum's life, and for that matter, what happened with some of the other characters and family members that we got to know through this wealth of correspondence. So just as a reminder, The bulk of the letters in the copybook end in May of 1846, which is when Barnum made a rather quick visit home to Bridgeport from England. And we get a few scattered letters in the copybook after that, but it really doesn't have content that gives us the full picture of what was happening in his life after that point or at that point. So, Adrian, welcome back to the podcast. It's been since episode one that you've been on here.
0: Oh, thanks. It's great to be back and um, wrap things up, I guess, too. Yeah,
1: yeah, and of course you wrote all of the episodes, uh, which was a tremendous undertaking. Can you first fill us in on kind of what was going on in May of 1846 and after when Barnum, when did the tour end? When did Barnum and Tom Thumb really you know, come back into the United States?
0: Well, as we learned from Barnum's letters, he had a hard time committing to an end date for that European tour. You know, he, he was always thinking, we'll just do a bit more, keep piling up the tin. That was one of his expressions. Um, which meant adding to the coffers and then we'll go home. The lure was irresistible for him and he was pretty confident of succeeding with British audiences, unlike the experience he'd had in provincial France. On the other hand, the fact that he hadn't been at home for his wife when she gave birth to their fourth child caused him a lot of mental distress and feelings of guilt And I'm sure a large part of that guilt was connected to the fact that they'd lost their third daughter, and that happened just a couple of months after he'd gone off to Europe. So he wasn't there to comfort his wife or be with her in their first months of mourning. Adding to that was a more recent loss that hit home, and that was Charity, that's his wife. Charity's sister had recently died in childbirth, and so she was understandably frightened um, mother and infant mortality were very real to to Barnum and Charity. So he finally made a visit home in May of 1846. He actually arrived at the end of April, and at that point his newborn was two months old. In part, his delay going home was because he really feared the dangers of transatlantic travel in winter. But even so, he was only in America for a few weeks and then returned to England in late June. And he had actually intended to stay until mid-July. There were undoubtedly a whole host of issues that caused him to head back three weeks earlier than he planned, but perhaps chief among them, problems at
1: home. Oh, really? What was it that happened at home?
0: Well, a couple of months after he got back to England, he wrote to Moses Kimball, that was his competitor friend in Boston, and he said in so many words that those weeks at home had been hell. And he actually said that it was so bad that if he had stayed any longer, he would have been confined to an insane asylum. And, you know, he, he said these troubles were pure misery, unlike anything he'd experienced before. One might reasonably speculate from various remarks and letters that a lot of this was marital disputes, probably stemming from Charity's displeasure, Hmm. maybe more like anger (laughs) at his long absence, and his hedging about his return, and then not returning home in her time of need. In a letter to Tom Thumb, Barnum referred to Charity's poor health, and whether that was a euphemism for her mental anguish is, is hard to say.
1: Sounds like things were were hard when he got back, hard for her and hard for him.
0: Absolutely. And on Barnum's part, alcohol may have played a role, oh. making a, a difficult situation worse. He had gotten used to drinking quite a bit in Europe, and to make a point about how much he enjoyed fine wine, <laughs> after he built Iranistan—that was his elaborate first home— He claimed to have been even more fond of its wine cellar than this amazing mansion. So apparently Charity was not the only one who thought drinking was damaging her husband's relationships. Mm -hmm. And after Barnum's final return home in 1847, he did give up drinking. I think it was in stages like first giving up spirits and then wine as well. And he mentions this to Moses Kimball in early 1848.
1: Interesting, because I knew he was, I knew he didn't drink. I knew he was a teetotaler. But for some reason, I thought that happened earlier than at this point. That's thats interesting.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, it was, he had an awakening, you yeah. know, to the problems that his drinking uh, was causing, not just at home, but right. perhaps with business relationships, too. So, there was that personal situation added to which was his uncle's unexpected death and yep. the subsequent situation of having the Baltimore Museum land in his lap. That was a venture that his uncle had undertook, but Barnum became a partner too. Right. Barnum was probably anxious to get back to England because he kind of feared that Sherwood Stratton, that's Tom Thumb's father, hmm might do something foolish or even spiteful in his absence. Stratton was apparently that kind of person and mm. Barnum often said that he was always grumbling and complaining about everything.
1: <laughs> I remember his comments where he just he he really did not seem to have a good relationship with Sherwood and they were really not great partners. They were (laughs) not ideal.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) It was uh, uncomfortable, to put it mildly. That's certainly the impression we get from the letters. In any case, the Tom Thumb tour pressed on and did a tour of the towns in the southern areas of England, and I believe up into Wales Hmm. as well, and then returned to London for the Christmas season. Finally, you know, they called it quits and boarded a ship for home in January. Then that was three years after their start, Um, and they arrived stateside in February of 1847. Now, Barnum had thought to stay till spring, but there were pressing concerns pertaining to the American Museum, and he felt he should not wait.
1: That is, So he wouldn't travel in the winter for his daughter being born? Mm. But he would travel back in the winter a year later. That's that's fascinating.
0: I, 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 that's it is. It is. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I guess it shows where his priorities, priorities kind of were. Right.
1: Um, I hope they had some time to rest after this because that was a couple of years that they were in Europe, right?
0: Well, three altogether, yeah. Wow. Um, but unfortunately, rest was not in the cards for young Charles Stratton, Tom Thumb. Um, nor for Barnum who told his friend Moses Kimball that he had the work of ten men to do when he got back. And uh, he was saying that because he hadn't been able to stop and visit Kimball in Boston. As far as Charles, he did not get a break for another month. Oh, mm. of course. Yeah, Barnum wasn't about to let an opportunity go because, of course, he wanted to capitalize on the public's entertainment. Mm-hmm he wanted to capitalize on the public's excitement about General Tom Thumb's return. And as, as a matter of fact, it was part of an earlier agreement with Sherwood Stratton that, that he, Barnum, could show Tom Thumb for the first four weeks after his arrival in New York. Hmm. So, you know, that meant no dilly-dallying, no, no delay, timing was everything. And so right. finally, after four weeks at the American Museum, Charles was able to go home to Bridgeport.
1: Wow, and I bet he was overwhelmed in his hometown by the by the crowd wanting to see him. Because I mean, he's he's from there. He's been in Europe this whole time. He's seen heads of state. That probably was a really big deal.
0: Sure, absolutely. And they and they anticipated that because back then Americans were very much in awe of all things and uh, people Mm. connected to Europe and and royalty. And so they fully expected that bridge porters would demand to see him because here was a person they knew who had been touched by royalty. So, you know, in order to satisfy them, it was arranged that General Tom Thumb would give two benefit performances for the Bridgeport Charitable Society. And I think Charity herself was a key member of that society, so perhaps that helped appease her as well. (laughs) And then after that, Charles finally got a break. He had a four-week vacation, and then the touring started again. Meanwhile, his father had gotten busy seeing to the building of a grand three-story home for the family in Bridgeport. Um, That was up at the north end, um, just beyond the heart of the city.
1: So that must have been a big change for the Strattons, because if I recall, he was somewhat popular here, but he was not nearly the kind of amazing success that he was in Europe.
0: Yeah, they really only had a year um, in in America before they went off to Europe. And so, you know, when they came back from Europe, the Strattons had a whole big pile of money. And so their lives changed enormously with this um, colossal amount of money they earned on the tour. Um, prior to that, Sherwood Stratton had been a carpenter and, you know, sort of barely made a living for the family. And his wife, Cynthia, um, did cleaning. and. Wow. Now, suddenly, they're in a position to employ servants.
1: Yeah, that has to be. I mean, you said this was just a break before they started touring again. It was like four weeks, I think you said. So where did they go um, after the Stratton's vacation at home in Bridgeport? Vacation. (laughs) It's at home.
0: Yeah, well, first, well, I'm sure it felt like a vacation (laughs) after, after such a long time away. Um, Well, first, they headed to Washington, D.C. to meet the president. Oh, wow. (laughs) That was President James K. Polk. And they also met the Secretary of State, who was James Buchanan. And a decade later, he became the president. Right. And then after that, they went on to Richmond, Virginia, Baltimore, Maryland, and then to Philadelphia. And Tom Thumb was a big hit there. Thousands and thousands came to see him. And in 12 days in Philadelphia, they made almost fifty six hundred dollars, which in the dollars of those time was quite a bit. It was a huge profit, really, because according to Barnum's autobiography, their expenses only ran about twenty five dollars to thirty dollars a day. You know, so that means, yeah, the net was fifty two hundred or fifty three hundred. Wow. Yeah. He thought they'd done well in New York, earning $16,000 over a period of four weeks. And here was Philadelphia proving to be very lucrative, too. Hmm. And so that was just the beginning of a year-long tour.
1: So at this point, Tom Thumb is traveling. Did Barnum travel with them on the tour? What was he doing at this point?
0: Uh, Yes, he was with them. The Strattons, Um, you know, Charles' parents accompanied their son and there was a manager and Barnum was present for a large part of the tour too, but it had been agreed in advance that he would be able to go home periodically. Mm. And, you know, that makes sense because he had the uh, American Museum to attend to as well.
1: Right, right. So they went to Virginia, Richmond, Virginia, Baltimore, Philadelphia. Where else did the tour go?
0: Well, after Philadelphia, they went on to uh, the southern New England states Mm. Um, and then they turned west to areas of upstate New York, going all the way across to Buffalo and Niagara Falls and then back again into New England, um, going up as far as Portland, Maine. Mm. And then um, they did a tour of the south um, and they did this by taking a steamer from New York. Uh, going to Charleston, South Carolina. That was their first stop. Mm-hmm. And then on that Southern tour, their furthest destination was actually Cuba. Oh. And apparently they were very well received uh, in Havana and Matanzas. And then hmm. uh, they came back to the States again. Their next stop was in New Orleans. And after that, they headed up the Mississippi River to St. Louis. Okay. Then they came back east on the Ohio River Um, They stopped in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, Cincinnati, Ohio, and then Pittsburgh was the end of the end of the line for the Ohio River. And when they reached Pittsburgh, it was May of 1848, just to give you that time frame.
1: Okay, so roughly two years after the end of the, the European, well, not quite the end of the European tour, but after the copy book ends. After the copy book ends, copy book
0: ends yeah. yeah. But this would be um, about, what, a year and yeah. three months or something that's, like that after they got home.
1: That's a lot of travel in in a year. That's a lot of travel. <laughs> because you're going to Cuba, to Maine. So for the time period in the U.S. when they were doing all this, there were about 29 or 30 states. So they really covered a lot. I mean, including Cuba, which wasn't was not associated at all with the United States at that point, right? Right. And he was only nine at this point.
0: I know. It's incredible to, to think of a child so young, being able to deal with such a demanding life. Not not only all the travel, which was a lot harder and less comfortable than today, but but also mm-hmm. the fame. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we're well aware that fame presents its own challenges, especially for a child star. Right. Barnum, on the other hand, was getting very tired of all the travel, and he was more than ready to be at home with his family. He had given up drinking, at least drinking spirits. Um, The temperance pledge might have come a little bit later, but it sounds like, anyway, peace prevailed once again at home. So he departed from the group when they reached Pittsburgh. That was, again, in May of 1848.
1: Okay, and then did he go back to Connecticut at that point?
0: Yes, he did. He, he was actually a very exciting time in his life, personally. Hmm. Um, thinking back to a few of the letters in the copy book that were written to charity in the summer and fall of 1845, you know, they were back and forth about where they should settle and whether right. they should buy or build a home. Up to that point, the family had been renting a home in Bridgeport, and um, they seemed hmm. happy with the location, But then some issues came up, and I think these were family issues with other relatives that sort of made Barnum feel um, Bridgeport might not be the ideal Mm. place for them. However, either he or he and charity, or maybe charity, did at some point decide that it would be Bridgeport <laughs> over the other places Barnum considered. One, I remember one was Staten Island.
1: She's like, You've been gone. I'm just making a decision.
0: It <laughs> <laughs> could be. So, although the copy books, uh, the letters don't tell us this, uh, we learn from Barnum's autobiography that it was in 1846 when he purchased 17 acres of land. And this okay. was a parcel of land on the west side of Bridgeport, which was technically part of the town of Fairfield, but practically speaking, was more connected to Bridgeport. So mm-hmm. it would seem that buying this land must have been one of the things he did when he came back to the U.S. in, um, you know, May of
1: 1846.
0: Right. Um, and I say that because there are no copybook letters concerning a transaction. So. Right. One would think it happened, you know, here. Right, yeah. Um, And then he does say in his autobiography that the work on the new home began while he was abroad, which would mean then after he went back to England um, in the summer of 1846.
1: Okay, and that spot, that place that he was building then was really a palace. I mean, it was unlike anything that had been really seen in America at that point, right?
0: That's true. It was modeled quite closely on a royal palace, as a matter of fact, the Royal Pavilion in Brighton, England, which right. Barnum and Charity had visited. Barnum hired the architect, Leopold Eglitz to create mm-hmm. the architectural drawings based on a plan of the Royal Pavilion that he'd had drawn while he was in England. And that palace was Moorish in design with, you know, onion domes and really elaborate decorative features, elaborate woodwork, sort of lace-like woodwork that overlaid the structure. Barnum um, described it as an oriental villa and he called it Iranistan.
1: And there's still an Iranistan Avenue in Bridgeport,
0: correct? There is. uh, It's the uh, site of... Uh, Klein Memorial Auditorium. Now, okay. I, I, you know, I always think it would be great if you could step back into a time machine to actually see that home, um, since no photographs are known to exist, and yeah. and to hear what people had to say about it. It was an incredibly elaborate and extremely unusual home, and obviously quite unlike New England architecture <laughs> or any architecture in the states at that time.
1: And for all those listening, if you want to see some approximations of it there's I think a painting that the Barnum Museum has and there's also a model that was actually made for a movie and it's it's incredible there's a couple of videos on our YouTube channel that will show you what that place looks like it is unlike anything that would be seen in this certainly in New England at all Uh, it's it's just amazingly different
0: Definitely when people come in the gallery and they see that model and you tell them this was a home in Bridgeport, (laughs) their jaw sort of drops. Really?
1: What? Yeah. Yeah. So when he got back to Bridgeport, he left the entourage in Pittsburgh. Was he returning back to Iranistan or was it not built at that point?
0: Well, he was probably overseeing the last phases of building uh, the mansion because the family moved in late that summer. Um, We do know they had a huge housewarming party on November 14th of 1848. Mm. Like 1,000 people came. Wow.
1: Um, And there's no photographs or daguerreotypes, as you mentioned, that exist?
0: Well, none are known, which is a shame, uh... um, especially because the uh, mansion burned down a decade later. Almost certainly there were some photographic images made because a color lithograph depicting the house was produced after it was built and there were also engravings printed Various publications, in, including one of Barnum's mm. museum guidebooks. And it was typical at that time for the printmakers to copy from a daguerreotype, you know, in okay. order to get a, an accurate depiction. But anyway, we don't know of any surviving uh, photographic mm. images. But the Barnum Museum does have two watercolor drawings, you mentioned, mm-hmm. um, that were made during the time Iranistan was standing, and they show not only the mansion, but also the elaborate landscaping. You know, there were all these outbuildings as well, and and, um, amazing uh, landscaping design. And, you know, thanks to that housewarming party to which members of the press were invited, and you know that (laughs) is Pierre Barnum, um, there are some fairly detailed descriptions of the rooms and, and the grounds and outbuildings. Wow.
1: I I wish there was a photograph. If anyone has one, let us know. (laughs) We'd love to see it.
0: It's such a distinctive building that, you know, anybody who might have such a thing would say, what is this place? (laughs) Well,
1: this must not be from here. This must be from somewhere else. So at that point, Barnum is finally able to enjoy being at home with his family in a grand home decorated with all of these luxuries that he brought back from Europe.
0: He was, and in fact, he says that the years 1848 and 1849 were probably the happiest in his life. Mm. He finally got to enjoy his role as a father and to discover new interests. One of them was agriculture. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I assume he didn't particularly like farm chores being brought up in, uh, in Bethel.
0: Yeah, know, His autobiography yeah, says he detested farm chores, um, so it is it is surprising. Um, but he had acquired a lot of land in addition to the 17 acres for Iranistan. He had another hundred acres, and I guess he naturally thought to turn it to profit. You know, so he hired a farm manager typical barnum. He yes, he mentions they were growing potatoes, raising sheep and so on. And and he said mistakes were made and, you know, a lot of it due to inexperience. Mm. Um, but I think the funny thing, he says he was bitten by hen fever, <laughs> which I guess must have been a thing at the time. And that led to his having poultry contests inside the American Museum, if you can oh. imagine that. It's, wow. it's kind of okay. interesting, this blend from personal life to you yeah. know his, his business life huh. at the museum. And uh, then in 1848, he was elected president of the Fairfield County Agricultural Society. And, and he huh. held that position until... The mid-1850s, wow. they would, um, you know, organize fairs and competitions and definitely became a thing in the region. And, and Barnum would give, you know, addresses or speeches right, right. to the society, even though in, in some of these he was quite open about the fact that he knew little of agriculture <laughs> and made lots of mistakes.
1: <laughs> so we kind of have caught up a little bit on what was going on with Barnum. We've caught up a little bit on what was going on with Charles Stratton. What about his daughters? Because we read in his letters to Caroline, his eldest, and the notes he wrote to Helen, which were very endearing. She was a lot younger. Uh, she was, I think, five at the time. Do we know anything more about their lives during this time, which is when their father was kind of there? As he said, he was finally happy. He was in involved in their lives at this point.
0: Yeah, that's a good question. He, he was busy with his museum and these other activities. but. He also had time to be with his family, which included baby Pauline. She would have been a, a toddler at that point. Um, and it's said that she became his favorite daughter. And that kind of makes me wonder if that was partly because he was involved in her early childhood and, you know, they formed a bond. Helen at this point would have been eight and nine years old, so uh, she and Pauline probably benefited most from finally having their father around Caroline was in her mid-teens and as we know from the copybook letter she had been sent to a boarding school in Washington DC at age 12 that chapter of her life began while her father was abroad and feeling very anxious for his daughter to learn French
1: oh yes I remember <laughs>
0: um, and that uh, you know it was a few months after she and her mother and her sister Helen returned from France I don't know how long she was at the boarding school but my guess would be probably till she was 16.
1: OK. And uh, do we have any letters of hers that have survived? We've, we've only really read in the copy book his letters to her.
0: Well, we have a journal, actually. Oh. Um, and from that journal, um, we know Caroline was back with her family at least in the summer of 1848 when she was 15 years old.
1: Okay.
0: Um, during that summer in July and August, the family, which actually included an aunt and uncle and cousin of Caroline's Hmm. went on a trip through upstate New York into Canada. And this trip began on her father's 38th (laughs) birthday, (laughs) I think, (laughs) true Barnum, right? That's July 5th. Okay. And the family then returned August 11th. Now for a good portion of that trip, they were following along with the Strattons on the General Tom Thumb tour. So the two families were together a lot of the time, and Caroline often mentions going to see Charles perform. Hmm. And when the Barnums and Hallets, the Hallets hmm. were relatives on Charity's side—came home in mid-August, the Strattons continued on with the tour. It's really a wonderful thing that Caroline kept a journal about the trip, and, and that it was preserved.
1: Yeah, um, and. I guess the the interesting thing would be to find out what did she write about in this journal? Like, does does she sound like he does, that very kind of informal, personal feel that he has in his journal that's very different from other writings that he made?
0: Yeah, well, in a way she does sound like her father, but I would say also that her style might reflect her age. You know, she's a teenager. And so, for instance, she sounds very impatient, um, not so sympathetic towards her mother when her mother fell ill during the trip. Um, And you can sort of hear a teenager being that way, right? But her youth had its advantage. um, You know, when you want the inside story about something in the past, a teenager's diary (laughs) or letters can be just the ticket because they are often less filtered than adults writing. Right. Yeah. So Barnum was probably atypical in that regard because he was pretty forthright in most of his letters. You know, sometimes I he it, yeah. yeah, sometimes he'd hold back, but most of the time not so much. And we certainly know Caroline had a couple of those very frank letters from him. <laughs>
1: I, I remember her father had been very critical of a letter that she wrote him when she was twelve, saying her spelling wasn't good, wasn't very good. Her spelling was very bad according to him. And he was kind of unkind actually about it.
0: Oh yes. He he was really harsh, uh, for something that seemed very yeah. minor. Um, but now, jumping ahead to 1848, I, I'm sure at that point she had acquired a far better education than her father had ever had right. during his childhood in Bethel. So, Caroline provides some interesting commentary in her journal, and she was a pretty good writer. Of course, keeping in mind this was mm. a personal journal, not, you know, maybe meant to share with friends, but not not to be published. Right, right. Um, So, you know, I kind of think, oh, it'd be funny to think it was an extra credit project for (laughs) school, you know, like what I did on my summer vacation like we do today. But I'm not sure that was the case. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So what was to you the most interesting thing in her journal?
0: Well, one of the things that really surprised me um, was visiting penitentiaries and an orphanage that that's part of a family vacation Um, you know you you might have thought the Barnum's were sending their daughter to a private school where she would be sheltered from (laughs) you know the ugly realities of society yet here they were visiting not not just one but two monumental stone prisons Hmm. one in New York State and the other in Canada and they didn't just go to see the outsides, they went inside as well. Hmm. The first one they saw was um, Auburn Prison, um, that's in okay. New York. It was so named because it followed the Auburn method that was supposed hmm. to rehabilitate prisoners. As brutal as it sounds today, it represented what was then a modern approach. Hmm. And Interestingly, Caroline—I mean, this was a comment that I just thought was interesting. She said that African Americans and whites were not segregated in this prison. Interesting. Yeah. The men were, um, of course, made to do all kinds of work, which ranged from making products, all kinds of products which the prison um, made money from, as well as performing hard labor. Mm -hmm. And then the key thing about the Auburn system was that it demanded total silence. Oh my. Yeah, the purpose of that was to take away a prisoner's sense of self. Huh. Yeah, and thus make them compliant. The punishments were extremely harsh. They were both corporal, like with the cat-o'-nine-tails, um, wow. as well as uh, solitary confinement in, you know, dungeon-like spaces.
1: Jeez.
0: Yeah. But on the other hand, um, the more humane aspect of that prison was that it had a hospital mm-hmm. and that the inmates were given apparently much better quality food than would be the norm in a prison
1: that's still though that's that sounds like not a place you would go on vacation. That sounds more like a nightmare that you try to stay away from.
0: Yeah, I I agree. Um, And at first I thought it was just so odd that Caroline writes that they really wanted to see this place. Um, But I did a little research and I learned that Auburn um, was actually a place that attracted sightseers in the 19th century.
1: Different time. (laughs) Wow. I mean, I guess people now would go to like Sing Sing, but that's at this point, a prison that's not operational. Yeah. So it's a different kind of thing. Wow, that's just crazy. And you said they went to another one as well.
0: They did. The second one was in Kingston, Ontario, Um, She did not uh, give a name, Hmm. but said it was also a monumental granite structure, you know, and they would see the prisoners actually working on these things, you know, expanding them. They saw some pretty bad stuff at this penitentiary, and Caroline's opinion was that it was not as well managed as Auburn, not as orderly or not as well set up. Um, And at the time they went to see Auburn, there were no female inmates. They had actually been moved out to Sing Sing. OK. But at the penitentiary in Kingston, Charity saw women prisoners Hmm. and whatever their condition was she felt this was not something she wanted her daughter to see so caroline you know tells us that Hmm. Um, but among the horrors that caroline did see was a device used for punishing prisoners this was a very narrow tight confinement box and this was she says greatly feared by the inmates because a person would spend six to 12 hours inside it upright and this was very painful like torture
1: yeah, yeah no joke
0: Oof. <laughs> so you know reading caroline's descriptions i just felt very surprised that a victorian era teenage girl who attended a fancy boarding school had these experiences hmm. going inside two you know large prisons and then she wrote about it in her journal i mean that's, that's a very interesting perspective
1: that's Yeah. I mean, it's actually kind of shocking that that would be something that would be considered a good thing to do or, or, you know, a a vacation, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, something on your vacation itinerary. What else did she write about, though? I I would guess that there's something that's not quite so kind of morbid, (laughs) something happier. (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh yes, they, they went to Montreal and then they, they went um, all the way up to Quebec City. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, their, their activities that, you know, she wrote about included visits to gardens and conservatories. They mm. went to churches, uh, some shopping expeditions, mm. including buying items made by Native Americans. Mm. And um, they sometimes went to the theater. She apparently really enjoyed a well-known Irish comedian that they saw. The scenery was certainly an important part of the trip. Mm. You know, just the idea of travel for leisure was pretty new then for ordinary people. Right. They mm. also visited a nunnery where elderly people and orphans were cared for. And uh, some aspects of that really upset Caroline mm. you know, to do with the children. Oh. okay. So, you know, she had some eye-opening experiences, and and I wouldn't doubt that her father thought these were valuable lessons for her.
1: I mean, he seems like the kind of guy that would, you know, I want to take a vacation, but I also want to teach you things. He Mm -hmm. he probably still had that Yankee kind of, you know, all experiences should be informative, not just, you know, for fun. Yeah. Um, So what about Charles Stratton, Tom Thumb? We know he he toured, but what else kind of went on with him?
0: Well, Charles was 10 years old then, and he was a veteran performer. So that. he was performing at all the various towns and cities along the way, and the Barnum family always seemed to go and see his performances on this hmm. vacation. And um, you know, Caroline evidently really enjoyed them and thought Charles was a very good entertainer. She also describes some of the humorous moments like the antics of young boys who were sneaking into the theater through a window and her father trying to keep these rascals out. I guess the window was right near the, the stage because Charles made the incident
1: funny <laughs> for the
0: audience. You know, He had this innate ability to entertain and... You know, much like that episode when Queen Victoria's little dog started barking at him and chasing him as he was bowing out of huh. her presence, you know, he was quick to turn that into a kind of a humorous comeback.
1: He he was a, a by all accounts a very quick-witted performer. I mean, it's, yes. it's very obvious that he knew he knew he he was not just some kid. He was something special. Yes, um, he was, was not
0: Learning, you know lines by right. road. I mean, he, he just sort of had this natural ability yeah. to entertain.
1: Yeah, And so were Charles and Caroline close at all or, or no?
0: Yeah, they definitely had a good relationship. Um, remember that Charles didn't have a normal childhood right. with friends of his age and so his relationship with Caroline and um, her sister Helen was pretty significant. Hmm. Um, Helen was two years younger than Charles and Caroline was five years older. Okay. And uh, they had all been um, pals together for the months when Caroline and her mother and Helen were in Europe. Mm. Charles was a mischievous boy by all accounts, and <laughs> Caroline and her father commented on that trait several times. So, you know, you got to figure the kids probably had a lot of fun yeah, together.
1: They probably did. <laughs>
0: Um, in all probability, they had a, a closer relationship with Charles than his two older sisters did with him. Um, right. The sisters did not go to Europe, hmm. um, but on this trip, Caroline uh, was both a friend and a and a protector. It seems for she mentions carrying him at times and having him sit on her lap when they traveled. So, sounds kind of like a big sister. Yeah,
1: <laughs> definitely. Did, Did she write anything about how they interacted?
0: Yeah, there are some delightful uh, vignettes. Um, Caroline mentions a needlework project that she had going at the time uh, on that trip that Charles helped her with. She was making a a knitted bead purse. These were Hmm. very fashionable and they involved complex patterns made with these tiny colored glass beads. And apparently Charles had been assisting by stringing beads on her knitting thread. So Hmm. um, I, I assume you need to follow instructions to get the colors correctly strung in order to form a a pattern or design. So on the return journey, when the Barnums and the Strattons were parting ways in Montreal, Caroline quotes Charles saying to her, goodbye, Carrie. The next time I see you, I will string some beads (laughs) for you. (laughs) You know, her own thoughts that she noted in her journal were that she felt quite sorry to leave him and, and hoped it would not be long before they would meet again.
1: Hmm. Caroline shares a lot of details, not only about where they went and what she saw, and also about her friendship with Charles, which, as you say, blossomed during their time together in Europe. Is there somewhere people can read Caroline's journal?
0: The Barna Museum owns a bound typescript of this okay. journal, um, which covers, as I said, July 5th to August 11th of 1848. Now, the original does not exist anymore, and I oh, think okay. actually— Caroline's daughter may have disposed of it when she had the bound typed copy made because mm. uh, there was a note that, oh, the ink on the original was so faded. That was mm. the reason for having the typescript made. Uh, you know, as a curator, I feel that's too bad. There wasn't a sense of the journal's value as an artifact, even right. if the ink was faded. But we do have a PDF, uh, typescript of that, old typed version. And that's online. It's in the Barnum Museum's digital collection in the Connecticut Digital Archive.
1: Okay. And we'll put a, a link in the show notes if you want to take a look at that. Mm-hmm. So let's move on from the family. What was going on with Barnum's museum enterprises at this point? Because if I recall, he was already in Europe adding to his stock and he was expanding his brand at that point. He was looking forward to managing what had been Reuben Peel's museum. This is the one in Baltimore that his uncle, Allenson Taylor, jumped in to get. And then Barnum ended up being a partner because he loaned his uncle a bunch of money. And the twist was that when Barnum returned home for a visit in spring of 1846 and was ready to kind of put everything on paper, his uncle died very suddenly. So what happened at that point? Did he go ahead with that plan to, to keep the Peel Museum in Baltimore going or, or did he
0: Well, he decided against it, um, even though while he was in Europe, he had been thinking, oh, he could buy more in the way Mm -hmm. of attractions because... You know, probably more than he would have otherwise because, you know, you have two museums. He was thinking, oh, he could shuttle the things right. around, sending them from New York down to Baltimore and then elsewhere. He, you know, he had his eyes on other venues as well.
1: Did he Did he say or anywhere why he didn't go ahead with it?
0: Well, certainly there would have been the element of shock at his uncle's death right. and, the, and then the realization that he couldn't step in at that time because he still had his obligations in England and needed to go back. Right. And it probably wouldn't have been realistic to think that his American Museum manager, Fortis Hitchcock, could also manage the Baltimore Museum. Mm. Um, For one thing, Hitchcock and Allison Taylor didn't have a great relationship. They just were, you know, like chalk and cheese. (laughs) Barnum also knew that Hitchcock's mental state was kind of fragile, and he feared he could have a nervous breakdown if overtaxed. He, He said pretty much that in one letter. So those are possible reasons Barnum decided to sell the Baltimore Museum, and that was the end of it for him, a very hmm. short chapter of ownership of that museum, unfortunately. I, I kind of think it would have been interesting to see how a partnership with his Uncle Allenson might have worked out. You know, it could have been tricky. You know, they didn't always see eye to eye on things. I,
1: I remember him kind of being fairly frank about that in one of the letters, that he, he kind of was like, well, you know, I'm— I think it must have been to someone else, but he was like, I don't always, I don't know if this is a good idea. I think, in fact, he mentioned to Fortis Hitchcock, listen, we're not going to go through with this, and then Allenson just did it, and so he was kind of caught.
0: Yeah, Barnum was, I think it was a bit of a a surprise that the uh, Baltimore Museum ended up being, you know, he was part owner of of that, but uh, yeah, Allenson Taylor seemed to be a kind of a feisty guy, and yeah. Barnum had the patience to deal with him, but Fortis Hitchcock did not. <laughs>
1: Apparently not. And Now, Barnum had other museums, though, right?
0: Well, a couple of years after he returned to America, he opened one in Philadelphia. Okay. Uh, that was in 1849. Um, there was a Peel's Museum in Philadelphia. In fact, that's hmm. where the Peel family's museum enterprises started back in the 18th century. Okay. But by the 1830s, that museum wasn't doing so well. You know Barnum, he probably thought he could do better, that he knew what audiences wanted, And uh, no doubt, he thought his investments in attractions could be made more profitable by having another museum where he could show them.
1: Right, which was what he was thinking with Baltimore as right. well. Um, where in Philadelphia was that museum located?
0: He opened his new museum at the corner of Chestnut and 7th Streets. Hmm. And in his autobiography, he declared that this was a first-class establishment and quite elegantly fitted up. He called it P.T. Barnum's Museum of Living Wonders. (laughs) And this is where he exhibited some of the very things he talks about in those copybook letters. Like one of his letters to Hitchcock said he was getting two magnificent paintings copied, one of the deluge, the other depicting Cain and his family after the murder of Abel. And that was a legitimate thing to do because Mm. the King of France actually encouraged copying of the paintings in the Louvre. Hmm. This was his way of supporting artists. So in Barnum's autobiography he says that those paintings plus several others he commissioned were displayed at his Philadelphia museum.
1: That's interesting because it, if I recall Hitchcock kind of discouraged him from the idea of opening a, a you know a dedicated picture gallery of copied paintings. He I think Hitchcock felt originals were better.
0: Right and so Barnum, you know, did not open a picture gallery in New York, but I-, I guess he thought it was fine to have copies of paintings in a museum where there were all kinds of things on display. And Barnum seemed confident that people wouldn't know the difference in quality <laughs> between copies and the real thing. Myself, I would maybe mm. argue that point because in Philadelphia, people would have seen the fine arts mm. that Charles Wilson Peel's museum had.
1: Mm what else did he show at the museum in philadelphia
0: well the living wonders part of the museum's name suggests an emphasis on people and animals Mm -hmm. and certainly many of the people that he made famous in his new york museum like The regulars like giants and giantesses and living skeletons (laughs) and fat women um, also appeared at the Philadelphia Museum. Hmm. Um, Do you remember the Scottish Highland fat boys, as you called them? Oh, yes. Yeah, Barnum wrote about them from Europe and brought them to the U.S. Well, they were shown at the Philadelphia Museum among the various venues of their tour. And basically, many of the American Museum attractions went there at some point or, or perhaps were moved there permanently. These included exhibits of wax figures. Those were very popular right, natural right. history specimens. And wax figures were actually among the things at Peel's Museum, too. Hmm. It's interesting that Barnum noted that in Philadelphia, he had to be quite careful about what he showed because there were so many Quakers, you know, he had right. long been touting the respectability of his museum in New York, but I guess he had to be even more mindful about that in Philadelphia.
1: <laughs> and was he managing this museum himself?
0: No, he hired a manager for the new museum. However. Okay. You know, it wasn't long before he felt it was too much work having the Philadelphia venue, and he ended up selling that museum in 1851, which for him turned out to be a good thing because it burned not long after that.
1: <laughs> not a surprise. Things seemed to burn. He had a very bad history with things burning. At he least this did. time he didn't get burned. That's right. <laughs> as <laughs> yes. it were. Um, so I'm surprised to hear the phrase too much work. Because that doesn't seem, it does not seem like Barnum had any limits in terms of work. He, he worked himself hard.
0: Yes, I agree. But he had other irons in the fire at that time. And perhaps relatively speaking, the Philadelphia Museum seemed more trouble than it was mm. worth. You know, and there could have been a bunch of reasons. For example, if he wasn't happy with the manager he'd hired or we just don't know exactly the reason for that decision. But it, it does seem to have been the right one.
1: Mm. And did anything good come out of the time he spent in Philly?
0: Well, before that venture ended, Barnum and his friend Moses Kimball got themselves a good deal in the way of Mm. collections. It so happened that the Peels Museum collection came up for sale, you know, at a sheriff's auction, Mm. that that is everything except the paintings, and he and Kimball jointly acquired it and then divided it up. Okay. Half of it went to Kimball's Boston Museum and half went to Barnum's American Museum. Mm. And that was undoubtedly quite a valuable and incredible collection, as it was assembled by Charles Wilson Peale long before either you know, Barnum or, or hmm. Kimball's museums existed. You know, that's kind of another thing I'd put yeah. on my time machine wish list to yeah. see.
1: <laughs> so it sounds kind of like Barnum and Kimball worked closely together.
0: Yes and no. Theirs was a complex relationship. They were both collaborators and competitors. While Barnum was in Europe, um, Kimball had asked him for a substantial loan to help him build a new museum. But Barnum said no, he couldn't spare the money. Kimball found other ways to finance his project and he went ahead with it. And that was one of the reasons for buying the Peel collection. He needed more artifacts for his new museum. But the two didn't really have a completely trusting relationship. And Barnum's choice of words in his letters to Kimball seem You know, designed to flatter his ego. Um, And in other cases, he kind of teased him or taunted him.
1: Uh, Why do you think that was?
0: You know, perhaps the nature of their characters. They were both very competitive men working in the same business. Hmm. They were friends, but yet not entirely trusting of one another. Barnum probably had some apprehensions that Kimball might just do something that could, well, I don't know, undermine or, or throw shade on his enterprises. Mm. And, and there was a time when Kimball basically said their friendship was over. Mm. So you get the sense there were issues, there was some tension, but it was disguised by their showman bravado, at least on Barnum's side. Mm. It's an example of that is when the Tom... Um, entourage came back to the US in 1847 and they started on their national tour mentioned that they went into New England and Barnum of course thought that on the New England jaunt they would uh, go to Boston and Tom Tom Thumb would perform and give levies at Kimball's Museum Hmm. so he offered Kimball a proposal which stated the number of performances you know the times Mm -hmm. the percentages of the profits that each of them would get But he prefaced this with a couple of paragraphs that definitely indicate he thought Kimball might just as easily reject the Hmm. plan as agree to it. So he took the tact of being polite but firm about it, basically saying he would hold his ground, would not negotiate on the financial arrangement. Hmm. And that is, of course, if Kimball was even agreeable to having Tom Thumb at the museum. You know, it's hard to imagine Kimball wouldn't have wanted to have Tom Thumb at his museum. He had stand to make a lot of money. But right. again, you know, his relationship with Barnum at times seems a bit shaky.
1: So, Kimball was as shrewd as Barnum when it came to these kind of financial arrangements?
0: I'd say so. Uh, one gets the impression he was a tough and rather crusty guy and no one was going to hmm. put anything over on him. <laughs> He seems to have been really quite successful with his Boston Museum. It, it lasted a very long time, um, hmm. in fact, you know, longer than Barnum's museums. Um, and Barnum, to his credit, praised C- Kimball's success uh, in a letter that he wrote in 1849. He complimented Kimball, saying that his business was, quote, stunning and, hmm. quote, beats mine all hollow. That's the kind of flattering language, uh, you know, I was talking about. Hmm. But, you know, if it's true, that's saying a lot. Kimball was doing better financially at that time than Barnum, who was trumpeting the success of the Wooly Horse Humbug in his letter. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what, the Wooly Horse Humbug? I don't remember that one.
0: Oh, Colonel Fremont's Wooly Horse.
1: Oh, Colonel Fremont, I remember yeah. him. Okay. Go back and listen. There's a couple episodes about that. Um, so. I want to keep moving on a lot of the longest letters in the copy book were written to Fortis Hitchcock who was Barnum's museum manager while he was gone. Can you tell us what happened with Mr. Hitchcock and Barnum after he returned.
0: Unfortunately, that is kind of a sad story, but also one that shows one of Barnum's finer qualities, honoring and helping a friend. Barnum was very loyal to Hitchcock, who had started his career as a Universalist minister. In fact, Barnum seems to have rescued him after a nervous breakdown, which caused Hitchcock to leave that career. That Barnum believed him to be an extremely honest man, and, and he was right about that. And he absolutely trusted Hitchcock and asked him to be his manager. Hmm. He also knew that Hitchcock's mental state could be fragile. It sounds like there was more than one nervous breakdown in his past. Wow. So the sad story at this point in Hitchcock's life is that in early November of 1846, that's three months before hmm. Barnum returns from Europe, um, his wife Caroline passed away, and that caused the poor man to spiral downward again to the point where he could not work. Hmm. So he just couldn't continue on as the manager, and, and that's apparently the reason the Tom Thumb entourage ended their tour in England early. Hmm. You know, we talked about that. They left in January of 1847 in the winter right. rather than waiting until the spring. Um, So that's, I think, you know, that was the reason for the early return. Barnum um, then ended up promoting John Greenwood Jr., whom he had hired in 1846. And Greenwood then, you know, went on to work for Barnum for about 20 years. Um, And like Hitchcock, he was also uh, trusted and a very competent manager.
1: So is that kind of the last thing we really know about? Hitchcock or
0: well no there's a bit more to the story Um, Barnum obviously tried to do right by his friend this was a friendship that went back to their days in Bethel Connecticut so it was deep Mm. Um, in fact When the Hitchcocks' first child was born in 1835, they named him Charles Barnum Hitchcock. That's
1: quite an honor.
0: (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) So I suspect Barnum uh, found him employment of some kind that he could handle or hired him occasionally. That's that's not entirely Mm. clear. But we know that Barnum didn't give up on him because Mm. a letter tells us that he had hired Hitchcock back as an agent in 1860. And Barnum sounded very happy about that. Um, Hmm. And we shouldn't forget that it was Hitchcock who brokered some really successful financial deals for Barnum in his absence. You know, to me, he's certainly an unsung hero in Barnum's success. Hmm. Barnum had trusted Hitchcock, not only for his honesty and integrity, but also as someone with sound judgment, which proved very much to be the case. So it would be fair to say he was, I think, more practical and level-headed at times than Barnum <laughs> was. Um, and, and Hitchcock you know, really came through for Barnum. I mm. think if it hadn't been for him, the American Museum would have maybe gone downhill while Barnum was off in Europe for mm. so long.
1: Yeah. Um. So what does the letter tell us about Hitchcock's return to the museum?
0: Well, this was in a letter Barnum wrote to John Nimmo. Um, That's the name of one of the correspondents we encountered in the copybook letters. Barnum told Nimmo that Hitchcock was once again employed by him, and he would go up to New Hampshire to broker a deal with the parents of another little person. This was George Washington Morrison Nutt. Hmm. Nutt, this is N-U-T-T was to be something of a, you know, like a replacement for the young Tom Thumb, you know, the next little person child star because Charles was a man now and had kind of lost that cute factor, um, even though, you know, his popularity, his celebrity continued on throughout his life. Well, the deal with the Nutt family worked out, and presumably Barnum continued to employ Hitchcock because just three years later, he was writing to a Mr. Morse to explain that Hitchcock could not be held responsible for not getting him tickets to the fairy wedding. (laughs) Some things don't change. That was the... That was the wedding-turned-major social event of of the era when uh, Charles Stratton and Lavinia Warren got married in 1863. Mm. Everyone wanted to be there. So in that letter, Barnum was standing up for Hitchcock, explaining that securing tickets was truly out of his hands and could not possibly have been promised, as this (laughs) man seemed to think. So despite the difficulties in Hitchcock's life, including being twice widowed, he lived to about 71. He died mm-hmm. in 1883.
1: That's that's a pretty good age for the time period, because as I recall, I think average was around 46 at that point. It might have been a little later by this point. What about Charles Stratton's father? Did their relationship or their kind of disagreeable partnership continue, or did Barnum kind of say, I'm done?
0: Well, Barnum had fingers in many pots, and as we know, he often seemed just unable to resist opportunities, and so He ended up partnering with a man named Seth Howes and with Stratton, they made an arrangement to charter a ship that would bring back exotic wild animals from Ceylon, Mm -hmm. including several elephants. Um. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) You remember that elephant plowing the fields in Bridgework? Well, he knew about this line of business or, or something about it anyway, because of the menagerie men he'd met and socialized with in London. And once the animals arrived in America in 1850, Sherwood Stratton assumed the management of this venture. It kind of became his responsibility.
1: (laughs) What was the venture like?
0: This was a traveling show called P.T. Barnum's Asiatic Caravan Museum and Menagerie. Very
1: Barnum title. (laughs) Yeah,
0: long, right? (laughs) (laughs) It was along the lines of a circus, but not a circus, and Barnum made sure of that. Um, He certainly didn't use the word circus in the name. Just like the theater, the circus had a bad reputation Mm. in that time period, and there were many towns that prohibited circuses from setting up, whereas menageries— generally could so yeah so Stratton was in charge of this enterprise for a few years but didn't seem to do a great job at it and surely there were the inevitable losses of exotic animals you know they really didn't know how to care for them back then but um, probably the bigger thing was uh, Stratton's drinking that became a problem Hmm. he was an alcoholic Um, and there were Hmm. attempts to get him to swear off booze but he fell off the wagon and that's probably an apt phrase in this case, and um, so the situation you know, just got worse.
1: Did Barnum keep him on at that point? or?
0: Well, the caravan enterprise ended and things with Sherwood Stratton deteriorated to the point that his family had him committed to the Hartford Lunatic Asylum in 1855. Wow. You know, he was obviously in a very bad state mentally because that wasn't a place where ordinary drunks were sent. There must have been mm. serious problems. And those negative character traits we read in Barnum's letters, you know, a pretty angry mm. sort of man, suggest he might have you know, developed, well, problematic behavior, shall yeah, we say.
1: Which would make sense because often alcohol or, you know, being addicted to alcohol when you're drunk, it, it, it heightens those behaviors.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know? So, I, you know, who's to say? But, I mean, he might have been threatening or even mm. violent. And then he only lived a few months after he was committed to the asylum. He died by the end of
1: 1855.
0: Mm. And prior to this, the Strattons had had another child, their fourth. It was after they got back from Europe. So there was okay. now another son besides Charles. Hmm. Charles was eighteen years old when his father died. But his mother, Cynthia, lived on to old age. She actually outlived Charles, but oh, wow. she did she died less than a year after he passed in hmm. eighteen eighty three. And you know, there's a lot more to learn about Charles and his career and his family in Eric Lehman's book Becoming Tom Thumb, Charles hmm. Stratton, P. T. Barnum, and the dawn of American celebrity
1: all right so you filled us in kind of on the good and the bad and the sad following the period of the the copybook letters from Barnum and on balance I think it's you know it kind of seems like things were pretty good for him he was having a lot of success with the museum his family life was a source of great joy he gave up drinking he was engaged in all of the various things that interested him but I have a sneaking suspicion that there was something bigger on the horizon for P.T. Barnum.
0: And you are absolutely right. <laughs> All this success was a prelude to the Jenny Lind concert mm. tour that Barnum orchestrated in 1850. You know, it was an extremely risky venture for a number of reasons, but it turned out to be an unparalleled success, and the rewards for yeah. both himself and the Swedish Nightingale, as she she was called, were immense. Barnum said in his autobiography that it was October of 1849 when he first had the idea of bringing her to America. So Hmm. perhaps, you know, it was that, with only a few months into the Philadelphia Museum, that, you know, was already dividing his attention more than he wished once he got this, you know, this brainstorm about doing a concert tour. Interestingly, I think, is that he, Recognized that he needed to get an agent to approach Miss Lind about his proposal, hmm. um, that he wasn't the guy to do it. Right. She had had other offers that she had declined already. So Barnum hired as his agent an Englishman who was working in New York. And this man, his name was John Hall Wilton went off to England, met with Miss Lynde and he pulled it off. Yeah. Um, they reached an agreement early in 1850 and then Barnum quickly realized he had his work cut out for him promoting her in mm-hmm. advance because you know, he began to realize you know most Americans knew nothing about her and certainly nothing about right. opera. So he set to work crafting a a public persona, kind of a brand for her. And and that was as much about her uh, philanthropy, you know, sort of her generous character as Mm. it was her voice. So by the time she arrived in September of 1850, people were really primed to see her.
1: That sounds like a good point, which we should probably wrap up this epilogue. We've discovered what happened with our main characters in the years right after these copybook letters end. And we know Barnum is about to embark on this amazing next chapter, starting with the Jenny Lynn tour. And of course, there's a lot of success for him after that.
0: Or struggles and triumphs, as he titled his later autobiographies. It was quite a mix of successes and setbacks over the course of the next Mm. few decades. A good biography to read about Barnum is Robert Wilson's recent book, Barnum, and American Life, um, Mm. that's published by Simon & Schuster.
1: Do you have any kind of final thoughts about the copybook that you want to share?
0: Yeah, um, to me, you know, the fabulous thing about the copy book is not only the quantity of letters and the Mm. range of correspondence, but also their depth. They provide so much to increase our understanding of a very complicated person, Mm. a man whose name remains so well known more than 130 years after his death. Right. Um, These letters... You know, being written in the early period of his career give you the opportunity to see that learning curve, right. the challenges, the frustrations of the young showman and museum proprietor, as well mm. as, you know, his sheer determination to be successful. Yeah. And because Barnum pretty readily shared his opinions and feelings, the letters also give us the nuances of his character. Mm. And they help us understand the time in which he lived. That's so important. Right. You might feel you know, that someone who lived long ago did or said things that are you know, off-putting or right. offensive or, or wouldn't be acceptable today. But in their time, those, those might have been kind of standard, the norm. Hmm. So, you know, I feel it's critical to learn about the historical context. And in the case of Barnum, you know, he lived in a century that was all about change, social, technological, everything all changing at a pace never before imagined by people. So during that time, he himself evolved, and of course, let's hope all of us do that across the course of our lives. So, you know, I guess you could say, while the fundamental character traits may not change substantially, I think it's clear that Barnum who was a man of strong faith in God and humanity and the desire to do good. He was someone who always sought to do better and to be better. He was not a perfect person and he knew it. Right. I, I kind of think that's why the title of our series, Becoming Barnum, feels so appropriate to describe the copybook letters. They give us an yeah. amazing window into his life, his connections, and his values, and who he was becoming. Right. Yeah, I hope listeners have enjoyed those deep dives into discovering the real story behind this legendary person. Uh, you know, for me, it's been a wonderful journey.
1: You know, it has been a wonderful journey for me, too, narrating each of the episodes as we came up and just learning so much more and seeing just how forthright he was in just talking about things and and really seeing, like you said, he was becoming the guy that we kind of know now, the guy that would promote Jenny Lynn, the guy that would promote the circus and Jumbo and all of that. Um, and it was just a pleasure to narrate. So thank you for delving into these letters and writing such such great episodes
0: oh you're welcome well certainly it was my pleasure it was a a labor of love but (laughs) but uh, well worth it i feel and i hope it's given um, pleasure to our listeners as well to come along on that journey thank you for doing such a great job narrating the stories
1: you are very welcome and that will wrap up the final episode of becoming barnum the journey to fame and fortune thank you for listening Support for this project is provided by the Barnum Museum from the City of Bridgeport American Rescue Plan Act Funds, People's United, which is a division of M&T Bank, and the Connecticut Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the Federal American Rescue Plan Act. This podcast was produced by the Barnum Museum. All episodes are based on the blog series Barnum's Letters from Abroad by curator of the Barnum Museum, Adrian St. Pierre, who we've been talking with today. Editing and sound design are by Rui Pino. I'm William Saris. I narrated all of the episodes. Kathleen Marr is our executive director, and John Swing is our COO. Please visit our website at barnum-museum.org to learn more about the museum. And don't forget, you can connect with us on social media. And visit the Barnum Museum's YouTube channel for behind-the-scenes presentations of our fascinating collections, several of which we've mentioned in various episodes and in this episode as well. And there are more stories there about this legendary showman, P.T. Barnum. Thank you for listening.